Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 166 of the Podium and Panel Podcast on maybe Labor Day tomorrow. The appellate courts we cover were not laboring very hard last week. Uh, the Seventh Circuit had a conference and the other courts just haven't been having many arguments. Uh, that doesn't mean well, they weren't working. There's been a lot of opinions. Right. There's a lot, a lot of, of opinions. opinions. Just out yeah. the oral arguments this summer. Yeah. And uh, neither of us can remember a time this slow, even in the summer, in the three and a half years we've been doing this podcast. So today we're one and done. Our case is from the Illinois Appellate Court. Hopefully we'll be district. more successful than most one and done players in the NBA. Uh, That's many right. Many of them That's are right. not good, uh, but uh, hopefully we, we do better than that. We'll, we'll try. And I, yeah, I don't know how the USA team finished today in Manila, but uh, Lithuania was beating them in the third in the third quarter when I was watching it earlier. T- today our case is from the first district. Gibbons versus GlaxoSmithKline LLC is an anonymous commenter suspected to be with the FDA on a draft article submitted to the JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, protected by the statutory reporter's privilege or the common law peer review privilege. Is there even the common law peer review privilege? If either privilege applies, does does apply? Does the plaintiff uh, relevant to the prosecution of the underlying product liability suit alleging that Zantac caused cancer? Did the plaintiff exhaust their other avenues of trying to obtain the identity and communications with the commenter, short of getting the documents from JAMA? Those are among the questions to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides Gibbons versus GlaxoSmithKline LLC, which was argued this past week. The uh, There was an article on the alleged link between cancer and Zantac that was preparing to be published when a commenter who is not a formal peer reviewer raised serious questions about the methodology that led the article being pulled. The plaintiffs in a product liability suit in California issued a subpoena to JAMA seeking the communications from the commenter and JAMA objected, asserting that the communications were privileged and protecting their source was critical to the medical journal process. The circuit court divested the privilege and ordered production. JAMA appealed. Pat, tell us about this interesting case. Thanks, Dan. And uh, th- this uh, to update you, uh, Lithuania did beat the United States, as it turns out. But okay. uh, apparently the, the Americans march on. They'll be in the quarterfinals, but I imagine they'll have a substantially more difficult draw than if they had than they had won. Uh, Lithuania, for those familiar, have a long history of, of good basketball players. Uh, they do. And, 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 good, and good teams. Little country. 300, 400. I mean, it's not a very big country, but... They have a lot of good ball players. I do. Um, so, this case is uh, really, a really interesting situation. Uh, as Dan said, there's this underlying product liability case. It's consolidated almost like an MDL in California, is what it seemed. There's a number of suits that are that are pulled together, and they uh, because the uh, American Medical Association is based here in Chicago, where. Uh, where the journal is published, they issued a subpoena 
to JAMA uh, here in Cook County to get the records. JAMA uh, objected, and now we're uh, at the appellate court. This is not the last court that's going to see this. There is no way this doesn't get appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, the only Supreme Court and I would fully expect that they would take this case. This, this is a really important issue. And it's important for a number of reasons. Um, so you have both the claim of this reporter's privilege, a statutory reporter's privilege, but also the claim of a common law peer review privilege. And the peer review privilege, apparently, if it even exists in Illinois, it's unclear that it does. There's no, the, the argument by the, by the uh, proponents of the subpoena, the underlying plaintiffs is, is that no Illinois court has ever acknowledged that it exists. Uh, some other courts, uh, federal district courts have said, yeah, it does exist in Illinois, but they're, they're, get, they're making an eerie guess as opposed to an actual uh, case that says that it exists. But so this person who's outside of the process somehow gets a hold of this embargoed article and says, this article is no good. Uh, it's got these serious methodological problems, yada, yada. And the plaintiffs want to get a hold of this uh, in order to use it to prove causation. Somehow this relates to causation. We'll get back to that in a moment because I'm confused about that. Me too. Uh, but, uh, because I, so, so they, the first, the touchstone of all discovery is, is it, is it relevant? Is it likely to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence? And I ha have a hard time understanding what evidence this could possibly show other than some sort of conspiracy theory between the defendant drug manufacturers and the FDA, um, how that would show causation when this article comes out in 2020. By that time, others had already published on this topic, of this claim that Zantac caused cancer or an ingredient in Zantac caused cancer. And what did it exactly cause? It, it doesn't show what they knew and when they knew. If this article was 20 years old and they buried it, well, maybe that would bear on the issue. But it's not 20 years old. It's 20 months old. Uh, and it had real problems with it, calling into question its conclusion that there was a link between Zantac and cancer. So I really don't understand how it helps anybody uh, prove anything. Uh, so that's my problem on that end. On the other end, I have a real problem with JAMA's position. My problem with JAMA's position is this. They're claiming the peer review privilege. This person wasn't one of the peer reviewers. This was somebody who got a hold of the article and said the methodology stinks. And if I, I've posted on this a fair amount, and, and I think there's plenty in the in the media, uh, plenty out there about how bad, corrupt, uh, and so forth the peer review process is. The actual engaged peer reviewers who were disclosed during the discovery process of the underlying case, because in the underlying case they deposed the authors of this article, and the privilege apparently belongs to them, not the reviewers somehow. Okay, whatever. They disclosed who the actual reviewers were and their communications with them. They produced those apparently. So they knew who the reviewers were. These are the reviewers who missed this massive methodological error in the epidemiological study that was done that led to the, the uh, article having been pulled and have to redo it. And maybe they came up with the same conclusion and maybe they didn't. But there was a big problem. That got caught and it was of such merit that they pulled the article before it got published uh and so the question is you know how do you you know no one knows who this person is they, they submitted it anonymously uh and so they're they're 
what they're one of the claims by JAMA is, well, you haven't exhausted your efforts to get the records. It's like, well, where are we supposed to go? Well, you think it's the FDA. Did you issue a FOIA request to the FDA? They're like, well, the last time we issued a, a FOIA request to the FDA in this case, they told us it would be three years to get us the documents. And that's when we knew a date range and a person. This time we don't know the person and we don't know the date range. We have a general idea of the date range. We don't know the person. And there's hundreds, if not thousands of people that potentially are within the scope of this, uh, of, of who could have done this. So that doesn't, that's why it's, it's a fruitless effort. First of all, I find it ridiculous and that the FDA takes three years to respond to FOIA requests. My recollection of even federal FOIA is it's a bit, it's a smite faster than that. Instead of being week years, it's weeks, if that, to produce documents. How, how is that even on the menu of options, three years to produce documents? Um, but supposing that it is, okay, I get their point that what's the, what's the utility of that? It sounds like a fishing expedition. They don't even know it came from the FDA. They suspect it did. Uh, and they think it did because they think the, and maybe there's merit to this, that the, you know, the FDA is captured by uh, the, the drug companies that they're regulating and they're trying to protect uh, the precious, in the, this case, the precious being the, the drug companies. And maybe there's merit to that. Uh, certainly there wouldn't be the first time uh, an example of this uh, occurred in not only the FDA, but other uh, entities that are supposed to be, re- you know, get in bed with the entities that they're supposed to be regulating. That certainly uh, would not be a new phenomenon. Um, there's a whole body of literature uh, on this topic of regulatory capture. But again, so I, they, they, they claim they didn't exhaust their remedies. They, they can't show that it's actually relevant to overcome the, the great uh, public concern. If people are not going to want to um, comment anonymously about bad articles and, and so forth. And, it's, and so I, I get, I, I really don't understand how it's relevant. I don't know what they were supposed to do in terms of exhaustion. But going to the other side of things, JAMA trying to say that this is somehow peer review, that's a joke because the peer reviewers didn't catch it. This wasn't part of the peer review. And you disclosed the peer reviewers. So the actual peer reviewers who were apparently incompetent. Um, so I, I really have it under. So what do you, what system are you trying to protect? Why is the system worthy of protection? It has proved time and again to be really a, a system that's not worthy of protection. Uh, and I, I, I don't get it all the way around. The whole thing I don't get. But it's fascinating depending on how this thing turns out uh, because somebody's ox is getting gored here. Um, and this, has, this case has su- substantial implications well beyond this particular dispute. Uh, Dan, what are your thoughts? I agree with you, Pat, on everything. It's, uh, it's hard to really understand why you're asserting a privilege, one that may not exist, and number two, that is not, it can't be uh, applicable here. Like you said, they, they disclosed the peer reviewers, unless you're somehow asserting that one of them was the anonymous. <laughs> but that doesn't make any sense, because peer reviewers, typically, that's what they're there to do. And as you mentioned, you've written a lot about that. There's all kinds of questions about all this kind of uh, peer review and scientific uh, evidence. But uh, an interesting case, like you said, I was thinking uh, one thing we might want to consider is uh, Ed Burke uh, from 
LinkedIn, who, who I'm connected with. He's a First Amendment lawyer down in Florida. That's, and sometimes that's B-I-R-K, Burke. Yeah, not, Burke. Not the B-U-R-K-E that seemed to be on every corner here in Chicago practicing law sure. or being judges. This is B-I-R-K, yes. Yeah, and uh, he, he may have some interesting perspective or when a decision comes out, we may want to think about having him on because he covers a lot of these interesting kind of First Amendment journalism uh, types of types of issues and may have some perspective, but uh, an interesting case, like I said, this is not the end of it. We'll see this at, I can't imagine the Illinois Supreme Court not taking this. It's too important of a case about too important of an issue. And like you said, with the FDA, yeah, I'm not, uh, the FOIA requests are generally 30 days or something. You can get, they can get extensions, but three years is pretty bizarre that they would. That that would be tolerated by a federal court. I mean, I, I, yeah. I spend my life in chancery and every other case is a FOIA case usually fights over what gets produced. But once they, but once they've decided to produce it, it gets pretty, you know, they get an extension. Sure. And if it's very large, they'll get a further extension and, and, and so forth. And if there's costs involved, sure. But the idea that years is going to go by for us to locate and another year for them to produce the documents, I, I, I can't, I mean, I'd love to hear the reason why that's required, and if a, and if a judge, federal judge, state judge, any judge would tolerate such a delay, I I, I can't imagine that that would be acceptable. That just seems me either. That just me seems either. absurd. And it completely thwarts the intention of FOIA requests and what the purpose is is to discover things and find out what's going on. So if this it's is three the people's years, business. right? This is the people's business, you know, and and that's there's exemptions, sure, for things that can't be disclosed but it can't take <laughs> years it can't be on the menu uh, no. of what's of what's allowable i get that it may be but that's that's that that should be um so why don't we do our prediction on this case okay now and then we'll come back and, and do our our other the the, the rest of the show on the, on, on the other half i i think jama wins i i, I think I, so I think i think judge johnson's opinion uh, judge Johnson was the circuit court judge. I think it gets reversed, not because her reasoning was bad or, or I just don't think that they're going to allow. It, it, it's a first amendment issue. I, I, I don't see them allowing this. Now I, that's not saying that I think that jam is right uh, at the end of the day, but I think I, I have a hard time thinking they're going to allow this kind of information to be, to be published uh, or to be, or to be produced and, and understand that, the parties are all clear that if it is produced, it's still going to be subject to a protective order. It's not like it's going to be out in the wild. Um, right. It's only going to be used for this case, and it's limited how it's going to, you know, how broad it can be disseminated and so forth. There's a very, we have very robust protective order in place, so it's not like everyone's going to get a peek at this. Um, but and they've all agreed to that. That was at the argument that they, hey, we don't, we're not interested in just you know plastering the world with this thing, but we do want to have it for the purposes of our case. I. I, I still think that the, um, this is going to get reversed, and we'll see what the see what the Supreme Court does with it. So, with that, we'll take our break and come back on uh, with four cases um, that were decided on our prediction sure to go wrong. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at Podium and Panel Podcast at Gmail Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. 
You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment two of episode 166 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And as we said, we don't have any other oral arguments, but we do have four cases to discuss. There wasn't anything on uh, business interruption with related with regards to COVID um, this week to, up, to update anybody on. And our predictions this week, uh, we were three and one. Uh, Dan is 253-57 and 17, and I am 250-60 and 17. I don't know where those three are, Dan. Where we have, yeah. I don't know if we just missed those cases or what happened. Either the, either the, there's, I, I'm not sure where that happened. We, we either going to, no. either the, the divide's going to get bigger or it's going to, you know, I'm not sure what's going on. No. But uh, the first one, we'll start off with the one we got wrong, which is this case is many names. Uh, it was, uh, it's uh, Andrin versus end user consumer product, an end user consumer plaintiffs class. It's also in-ray boiler chicken uh, antitrust litigation. Uh, everyone will remember, at least lawyers will remember, that what, what is a chicken from uh, the contracts class between uh, you know, it's Judge Friendly's very famous uh, opinion about what's a chicken. Uh, they had this German company, if I remember correctly, and this American company, obviously, because it was a decision out of the U.S. District Court, I think, in New York. And it was a, it, about what's a chicken. Uh, whether it's a boiler or a fryer, and apparently they're different things. Well, in this case, it's about there's a whole lot of class actions about the the sale of protein, whether it's pork or chickens in this case. I can't remember if, if beef is involved, but certainly pork and chickens have been involved. And that the, the, the protein producers have uh, stuck it to the end users, which have then stuck it to the consumers. And so there, there's this very large settlement with uh, one of them for $181 million dollars. And the question was whether the $59 million plus $5 million in costs, $59 million in fees plus $5 million in costs was appropriate on a settlement of this size. I will say this, $59 million in fees is a lot of money. Um, and maybe it's deserved because they got this. A lot of but money. What, what happened here, what, what's that? It's a lot of money. A lot of money. That's a lot of fees. I mean, it's good work getting $181 million recovered for your clients. So. They yeah. deserve a healthy fee. And I don't think that the the objector is saying they aren't entitled to a substantial fee in the eight figures. His point is, is that they aren't entitled to a third. Is that because they, and the reason why is because under the Seventh Circuit precedent, you look at what they would have done ex ante and you, in other cases, they've taken 25%, they've taken less, which you know, the difference between 33% and 25% when you're talking about 8% of $181 million is a lot of money. Um, it's a lot of money. It's, it's, you're really, you're talking about nearly $15 million. Um, that's, that's a lot of money, $15, $16 million, if depending. So the court said, yeah, the district court, despite all of its analysis and the time that it spent with the case, Send it back. You got to fit. You got to. You got to properly apply the fa- the factors, and the court doesn't say we're not telling you what the answer is. We're just telling you you got to apply it better, um, which really says make it go down, but maybe not. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll see what happens. But an interesting case. Uh, this was uh, the counsel for the objector in this case is Ted Frank. We're going to talk about another of Ted Frank's cases here 
uh, and, uh, at the end of the show. Uh, we had a very busy week. Uh, one went well, one went not so well. But uh, so Ted Frank uh, used to, uh, his organization used to be the Class Action Fairness, uh, or Class Action, I forget the name of it, now it's the Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute, but he goes around the country and challenges class actions that he doesn't think are appropriate for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, he was in uh, Google versus Gal, if I remember correctly. Um, That's right. So he, he's been involved in a lot of this, does a lot of this uh, kind of litigation. Uh, so an interesting case, Dan, anything to add to that one? No, the, uh, the only thing I'd mention is that those cases were from California, which had, the Ninth Circuit has a different process. And so we talked about that pretty extensively when we covered this case. But, uh, you know, it'll go back. And like you said, there's no formula. So it could be somewhere near. But I think they're going to have to explain or try to differentiate again better. So, uh, by the way, we discussed that case on episode 151. Dan, why don't you tell us about Continental Casualty versus 401 North Wabash, the Trump building here in Chicago? Um, that sure. we discussed in episode 162. And this was the environmental discharge, the water that uh, goes out into the water, heated up uh, from a uh, pretty common uh, event. Uh, my son went to Boyd College and they built a, uh, what they call the powerhouse that was supposed to at one time take the river water, kind of bring it up in the walls, heat and cool it. And uh, for the same reasons, they decided that that was not uh, environmentally sound because the water, when it goes back out, when you discharge the water, even though it's natural and doesn't, uh, you know, it's not, not polluted or anything, the heat of it kind of impacts some of the fish and other, other uh, life in the, in, in the water. Um, this was episode 162. The um, circuit court had granted the motions uh, that uh, were filed by uh, some of the insurance companies, and uh, including Continental Casualty or CNA, uh, and found that the conduct alleged by the complaints was not an occurrence under any of the insurance policies, uh, and uh, coverage was barred by the pollution exclusion. The uh, appellate court here, uh, first district, affirmed uh, for for the reasons, and uh, we got that one right. So. Well, a couple things here. First of all, though this is a Trump building, this has nothing to do with politics. It right. seems that the building and their lawyers screwed up and operated this system without a proper permit. Um, the court only addressed the occurrence question. That is only that was it was it intentional to use the to use this system without a permit? And if that was the case, then it wasn't an occurrence. What I found unbelievable was the volume of water they used a day to heat and cool that building. 19.7 million gallons a day uh, would go in and out of the building. It's a lot of water. Crazy. That's a crazy amount of water. Um, just one building. Very tall building, to be sure. Right. One of the 10 tallest buildings in the country. But, wow, that's a lot of water. Uh, and finally... <laughs> Contrasting this case with the case, another case we talked about, LM versus versus uh, City of Sycamore. If you recall in that case, this was an also environmental case where the court held that there was an occurrence, even though this was a system, situation where they failed to maintain the water mains, and that wasn't that that was an occurrence. This, where they intentionally ran the system without a permit, 
is not an occurrence. I have a very hard time keeping my brain, keeping these two cases in, in, I don't see the distinction. It seems to me that neither of them are an occurrence. In yeah. the Sycamore case, they intentionally didn't maintain the water mains. In this case, they intentionally ran the system. I, I, I don't understand the difference. I would love for someone to try to explain to me how they are different in a meaningful way. Because whether something is an occurrence or not is obviously the first issue in determining if there's coverage in, in a, with a policy like this. I just don't understand it, uh, how to keep these two cases in, uh, in, in, in my mind. Dan, do you have any insight on that? I don't. No, I think it'd be interesting. Hopefully, maybe maybe our friend Steve can maybe begin. We have him on and maybe he has some thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't explain this one. Which brings us to Ingold versus City of Geneva that was covered on episode 161. We got this one right, too. Um, this is one where uh, the, the, the person tripped and fell on a buffalo box, which was a new term to me, a buffalo box in a parkway in, in Geneva. And the court held that the adjacent landowner did not have a duty to maintain it and that the ordinance didn't apply and it wouldn't have made a difference anyway. And so plaintiff, too bad, so sad. Uh, you, you know, you know, uh, no duty here. Um, anything to add on that one, Dan? No. I, I, that, that was, it was interesting when we listened to it. It turned out the opinion wasn't nearly as interesting, even though it was 32 pages. <laughs> <laughs> which brings us to Greenberg versus Lahaki, which we discussed. You mentioned Steve a moment ago. Uh, we dis- I discussed this case with Steve on episode 145. We got this one right as well as, as predicted uh, the court held that there was no standing for uh, for Greenberg. Um, this is going to be the subject of my column in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin this week. We're going to fold this into the rule of the week. We've talked about Rule 8.4 before, or 8.4G before. This is a rule, a model rule uh, from the ABA that was ad- adopted, ad- adapted, and then adopted by Pennsylvania during yeah. the uh, litigation. They amended the rule further. Uh, I can't see how they amended it in any way that was meaningful, but the court sure thought they amended it in a way that was meaningful. The uh, At I, least the majority. What's that? At least the majority did. No, no, no. It was a majority decision. It was a unanimous decision. There was that's a concurrence. Right. That's right. There was a well, concurrence. that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. At he least jo- the concurrence joined the opinion <laughs> in full. So he did. No, there, there's, it was a three. It was a three judge. It was unanimous opinion of the, of the Third Circuit. Um. This case is obviously very important for a variety of reasons, not the least of which uh, on the standing issue. Uh, I went back and looked at the docket um, in the Third Circuit. There was no there was no supplemental briefing or 28 J letter on 303. There was a 28 J letter on uh, Menders, which was a fourth district case. And uh, so there are two, two 28J letters on that, one from the, uh, the plaintiff and one for responding from the defendant. Uh, they don't actually address that, that decision in their case, nor do they address the 303 case. The reason I mentioned the 303 case is because like the 303 case and the Menders case, for that matter, this, is a pre-enfor- this was a pre-enforcement challenge. And so that, that's your, your, standing, uh, your standing burden is, is higher because they haven't actually done this to you yet. And the opinion of the court was, well, and the rule doesn't actually prohibit what you want to do. And what you want to do 
is talk about in an academic setting free speech and uh, the importance of it and use the language that was actually used in the opinions and uh, you're worried about them coming down on you and number one we don't think that the rule covers that and number two uh, they've told you they're not going to do it um, I, I find the second one um, to be a bit comical that they could just submit an affidavit that says we're not going to do it really um, that that's that's all that's needed okay but the other one is that it's not covered and I, it's like I don't understand how it isn't um, so it, it, it this is not the end of this to be sure this is the um, uh, I, I expect that there'll be a, a petition for certiorari. This is a big issue for lawyers as to how our speech gets regulated. As I said earlier, uh, this is a case that was handled by uh, uh, Ted Frank um, of the Hamilton uh, Lincoln Law Institute. So um, I, I expect that this is not the end of the end of this. Dan, uh, what are your thoughts? The only other thing I mentioned is Lisa Blatt was the uh, appellant lawyer, and uh, we've talked about her pretty extensively. She she's uh, has a unique style that works for her. Um, yeah. Don't try she, this at home. She, she, she knows the cases. She knows the judges. But, uh, yeah, she's she's uh, she's been very successful. And and uh, she if this goes to the Supreme Court, I wouldn't be surprised if she argues it there as well. Um, so she's... Why, uh, why change horses? Yeah. Uh, they, they, she, won it on, she won it on appeal. And uh, she'll, she will likely, uh, if, it, if, you know, if there's a, P, uh, a petition for certiorari, I imagine she'll do that. And then if it gets accepted, I'm sure she'll, she'll handle that as well. Um, she's, in, she's incredibly accomplished and very effective. Um, she is. I just wish you weren't as effective in this case as she was, uh, <laughs> but, uh, there we go. So with that, we'll take our leave. Thank you everybody for joining us this week. We'll see you next week on the podium and panel podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.